Good morning, everybody. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's really good to see all of you here on this first Sunday in August. Uh, I, I want to reiterate something that was just mentioned during the announcements about the Urban Homeworks. I want to really encourage you uh, to stop by there and check that out and uh, just see if there's some place you can't fit in there. I'm looking for a lot of people who uh, are handy with things to help renovate these houses. and It's just a great ministry. Redeeming houses and demonstrating God's love by providing houses, houses for people who otherwise wouldn't have them. This is something that we have been feeling for some time a growing intensity on. We've always preached and stood for God's priority for the poor and the need for uh, the people of God to have compassion and uh, live with outrageous generosity. But we're really sensing that intensifying. And you'll be hearing more about that this fall as we're going to go through a series called Compassion by Command. Uh, starting this last Friday night, we, we are throughout all of August opening up uh, the, the church uh, to be an overflow homeless shelter. And uh, there's a desperate lack of uh, spaces for people, especially families, who uh, are homeless. And so the, we're just opening up our children's area, turning those into you know, uh, temporary bedrooms and and uh, housing these folks. Friday night, I and my small group were a part of the uh, volunteers who were able to come here and had the honor of just spending time with these wonderful folks and playing with their kids and, and sharing dinner with them and, and things of that sort. It was just a great time. I, I was the next day sore uh, from uh, wrestling so much with the kids and playing basketball and, and all sorts of stuff, but it was great. It was really great. I want to say that I was just... Uh, deeply moved by how many people stood up to the plate on this one. Uh, we, it, it, there's a lot of staffing needs to pull this off. And we're going to be doing it again in December uh, for the whole month. We need uh, volunteers every night, and then some people stay overnight. And um, we were wondering if we would have enough people to you know, make that commitment. And the slots all filled up within a week. I was just uh, so impressed with that. It was wonderful. In fact, they, some folks uh, volunteered for more than one night, and, and the, the leaders running this uh, had to go to them and say, listen, would you mind not uh, volunteering too much because we want to give other people a chance? That is the great, that's a great problem to have. Uh, so, so that was just great. And um, I just, you know, be with us as God is deepening this, this intensity and, and this vision for, for living out outrageous generosity and ministering to the poor and things of that sort. One other word before I get into the message, and that is uh, one of the things that's happened the last couple years is through the internet, we've got all these parishioners around the globe, I, and I just get blessed uh, so much when I hear uh, from these folks that we uh, have the honor of pouring into. Uh, about six months or so ago, I heard from a, a couple in Gambia who are out there all by themselves in this little tribe doing their missionary work, and, and they, they're parishioners over there, and, and they you know, just get fueled up by what goes on here. And uh, I just found out this morning that they are traveling through, and they stopped uh, over here this morning. So Eric and Ellie, would you stand up? Broha, would you stand up just to say hello? <laughs> Missionaries from Gambia. You guys go. Praise God. Thanks, you guys. It's, uh, it's a delight to see the message being brought out there, and it's an honor to partner with you guys out there. And say those who are around them and know them, say hi to them. God lays it on your heart to give them $100, do that. And uh, missionaries, you know, out there, been there for, what, 10 years or so? Uh, and it's, it's great. 
Okay, the message this morning is called Angry Love. Do you ever get angry? Sometimes. Angry Love. Um, and we're studying the book of Luke as we always do. Nothing fancy here. This is just a seminar where we study the word of God and worship God. So we're up to Luke chapter 19, and we'll start with verse 45. This is the famous episode of Jesus cleansing the temple. And the message is one I think is so important. Because if there's one thing that Christians aren't that good at, especially in Minnesota, it's knowing how to be angry the right way. And uh, we often don't get angry at stuff we should get angry about, and we get really angry over stuff we shouldn't get angry about. And so let's talk about angry love. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, quoting from Isaiah 56 there, but you have made it a den of robbers, quoting there from Jeremiah 7. Every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Jesus, at this point, still had the crowd behind him, and these leaders had their their, their wet fingers to the wind of the popularity polls, and they knew that they couldn't publicly arrest him and kill him, and so they're plotting a way to get at him uh, in secret. I want to look at two other episodes of Jesus cleansing the temple because it adds some important details. In Mark chapter 11, Verses 15 and 16, it says this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So Jesus is really creating quite a scene here. Uh, He's stopping the commerce. He's interfering with the livelihood of these merchants and these money changers and the leaders. And this would have been quite a scene because this is during the Passover and the temple is never busier than at this time of year. And so Jesus is uh, clearly going to raise the ire of uh, the authorities against him. And then there's the episode in John, which is a little different. Some people actually believe that this is a different cleansing of the temple. Jesus maybe cleansed the temple twice because John puts this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas the account in Luke and and Mark uh, happens towards the end of his ministry. Or it could just be it's the same temple cleansing, but John puts it at the beginning for thematic purposes. Uh, Because the gospel authors, like many ancient authors, arrange things thematically more than chronologically. So uh, I think it's the same episode, but either way, uh, it communicates the same point. Here's what it says in John. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts both sheep and animal. He drove the animals out. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium and every person listening through podcast or television or any other way. And I pray, God, that you would be opening all of our eyes and ears and hearts to receive your word. We pray that you'd give it your authority because human authority is not 
adequate to building the kingdom. Holy Spirit, come and invade these words. And Lord, whatever else happens, use this, God, as a message to uh, give us wisdom and courage to confront all that we need to confront and to do it in love. Teach us how to be angry the right way and for the right reasons. And build your kingdom in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. A little bit of background here. Jesus enters the temple courts. This is the courtyard outside the inner sanctuary. It was called the, the Court of the Gentiles because it's the one part of the temple that Gentiles were allowed to be in. And it's in this area that the merchants would sell various things that were necessary for the people to make sacrifices. This is why they came to the temple because uh, it, as required by the law, they had to, during Passover and sometimes other times, make sacrifices. And so at this busy time of year, they're all coming to offer up animals and whatnot. And these merchants would sell animals and, and uh, oils and things of that sort that were necessary for these sacrifices. The money changes were there to exchange currency because uh, the law was that all the currency in the temple had to be uh, Jewish. It had to be Jewish currency, so they wouldn't use Roman currency. And so people would come, most folks were using the Roman currency, so they would have to turn in their Roman money and get Jewish money in order to pay tithes and things of that sort in the temple. That's all fine, but the problem is that the thing had degenerated over some time into a scam. The priests and the merchants were uh, in cahoots with one another to pocket some extra money. And the way it worked was like this. Uh, family would come and they'd have their sheep or their cattle or their bird or whatever to sacrifice for whatever sins or for whatever reasons. But according to the law, the animal has to be worthy to be sacrificed. It's supposed to be unblemished. And so the priests had to certify that this animal was good enough to be sacrificed. So they'd inspect the animal and you look at any animal close enough and you're going to find some defect. And so they would find the defect and they say, oh no, this, this animal can't be offered. You have to go back and buy a temple certified animal from the merchants. So you go back to the merchants and they sell, they, you trade in your animal and then with some extra cash and you get a temple certified animal. Next couple comes and they got their animal and the, temple, the priest inspects that animal and finds a defect and says, you got to go to the merchants and get a temple certified animal. So they go and they trade in their animal and give some extra cash. And the animal they get was the one that just got traded in. You see, and, and so the priests and these merchants are making off some good money here on this scam. The, 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 the money changers had a, their own little scheme going on. Uh, people had to use the Jewish currency, so they had people where they had no other options, and they would charge them for their, the service of exchanging money. And so you'd give a Roman dollar, but you'd get 50 Jewish cents back, and they would pocket the difference. So there's all this corruption going on. It was really well known at the time. Jesus comes into the situation, and he is enraged. He makes a whip, cracks a whip, turns over the tables, makes quite a scene, interfering with all of that commerce, calling the authorities to bring this temple back to its original purpose, which was to be a house of prayer. Uh, this, of course, gets the authorities very, very angry. Uh, they are now more intent on killing him because not only is he a false teacher, as they've always thought, but he is interfering with their livelihood and undermining their authority. And this sets Jesus on a trajectory to get killed. Now, this is the most overt, uh, angry action we find Jesus 
displaying throughout the Gospels. I mean, he cursed the fig tree, that's true, and he, he had sometimes pretty harsh words to say to people. But this is the most aggressive we ever see Jesus acting. And so, since our life is to be patterned after him, this is a perfect time to learn on how we are to be angry. And so I want to focus on the anger of Jesus and how he handled it and what he was angry about. A few uh, preliminary points here. One is that I think it's important to know that Jesus wasn't here sort of just having a spontaneous outburst of, of anger. This wasn't a temper tantrum. He didn't lose control and start turning over tables uh, you know, because he couldn't control himself. Most scholars agree that, that uh, this was a premeditated, calculated act uh, for several reasons. One was that the, the knowledge of the temple corruption was pretty widespread, and most people believed that when the Messiah showed up, one of the things he would do was cleanse the temple. Based on Jeremiah 7 and several other verses, they believe, that's one of the things they expected the Messiah to do was to take back God's temple for Yahweh. And so Jesus is here proclaiming that he is the Messiah because he's fulfilling this expectation. And he was, in fact, Yahweh reclaiming the temple as his own. So Jesus went to the temple for that purpose. Many scholars also argue that this was a premeditated, calculated act in order to force the hands of the authorities against him. Jesus went to Jerusalem uh, to be crucified. And the best way to get yourself crucified in the first century is cause a ruckus in the temple. And so he's really forcing the, the hand of the authorities uh, to move against him. So it wasn't a spontaneous outburst, uh, outburst or anything of the sort. A second thing I think it's important to note as a preliminary observation is this. Some people have tried to use this episode as justification for violence. And they believe that this episode shows that Jesus wasn't unequivocally opposed to violence. And therefore, that justifies them being violent when they feel it's for uh, a good cause. I submit to you that that is reading a whole lot into this text. Um, it does say that he turned over the tables. But that was to free the animals. He was trying to interfere with the commerce of all this. And so he's freeing the, the, the sheep and the, and the doves and whatnot by turning over these animals. And it does say he made a whip. But it never says he used the whip on the animals, let alone on people. Uh, throughout history, the best way to control a herd of animals is to crack a whip. And it was just the best way to steer them in a certain direction. He's causing a stampede here, and so he's cracking a whip. But there's no display of violence here. Yes, Jesus is aggressive. Yes, Jesus is angry. But he's not inflicting violence on anyone. His purpose was to embarrass the merchants and embarrass the leaders and force their hand against him, but it wasn't to inflict pain on them. And had he done that, First of all, that would set him in contradiction to all the teachings he's been given about how to never retaliate and to turn the other cheek and to bless those who persecute you and love your enemies and so, so on and so on. But it also would have got him arrested right on the spot. Uh, there's no way he would have got out of there to continue the rest of the week. But he was angry, he was confrontational, he was aggressive. And since he's the son of God and he's sinless and he's the example we're to live by, what it tells us is that there is a place for followers of Jesus to sometimes get aggressive, to sometimes get angry, to sometimes get confrontational. To live in love as Christ loved us, which is the fundamental call of the gospel. 
It does mean we live free of violence, but it doesn't mean we live free of anger. And it certainly doesn't mean that we are always passive and let things just slip by. There's a place sometimes for cracking a whip and for turning over tables. In fact, love requires us. How we need to hear this in Minnesota, Niceville. Love sometimes requires that we get confrontational and get aggressive uh, and confront things that need to be confronted. How we get angry might be sinful. What we get angry about might be sinful, but anger itself is not a sin. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Now that statement would make no sense if anger itself was sin. In your anger, do not sin. He assumes you're going to get angry. You should get angry sometimes. But don't sin when you're angry. One of the ways you might sin when you're angry is by disobeying what he says here. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't go to bed with your anger. Don't sleep on your anger. One of the ways you can sin when you're angry is by not dealing with your anger. By pretending that you're not angry when you really are angry. By just going along with Minnesota nice and smiling and saying praise the Lord when inside there's, there's rage going on. Uh, that is sin because that is destructive. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. And what he's saying here is that when we stuff our anger and pretend like things are okay when they're not okay, we are giving the devil a foothold. It pollutes your life. When you swallow anger, you're swallowing poison. And it seethes in there. It becomes bitterness. It wreaks havoc on you. And it comes out in different ways, whether it's depression or anxiety or even physical uh, symptoms. Uh, it's never good for us to pretend on anything, certainly not on anger. Stuffing it is a form of sin. And we often do that in the name of, 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 of being pious. We think it's Christian to just keep on smiling and never get angry, when in fact the Bible says that that is sin. Anger is a God-given emotion. It is a, uh, our way of knowing that something that we value has been devalued. When there's something that's precious to you and, and it's been devalued, that should cause, it's supposed to cause anger. Now, it may be that you're overvaluing something, something is too precious to you, uh, and you may have to reorganize your priorities, but the fact that you get angry is not sin. If you go out and buy a new car, and you drive it off the parking lot, and you decide to pick up some groceries on the way home with your nice new car, and you park in the parking lot, and somebody drives up next to you in a junker, and they open their car door carelessly and ram it into your brand new car causing a dent and a scratch and whatnot you might get angry that, that, that car has some value to you and this person just devalued it that is normal that's also a very good reason why you might want to always drive junk because then you never have to get angry there's nothing wrong with new cars but I drive junk as long as it runs, you know, and, and the nice thing is it's paid for, the insurance is low, and I don't give a rip what happens to it. It's already falling apart. Carefreeness. I had a lady run into me front end uh, a little while ago, and she was very, very, very nervous because it was completely her fault, and there's some other thing going on in her life that she was just very, very nervous. And I was able to look at it and said, yeah, it's a little tiny bumpy. Yours is even worse. What do you say we just learned from the experience? And she was like, really? You're not going to call it an insurance? And I was like, no, no, God bless you. Just drive a little more safely next time. But see, if this was a new Lexus, that's probably not going to happen. 
Okay, anyways, moving on. ADD moment, write it off. So Jesus values the temple. He values this as something that was supposed to be the house of God. These people are devaluing it, turning into a common market. And so Jesus gets angry. And there's no sin in that whatsoever. That is supposed to happen. And what that, what that does is it confronts. It confronts a very widespread uh, false understanding of what it is to walk with God, what it is to be pious, what it is to be religious. Uh, if you're really spiritual, you'll never rock the boat. If you're really spiritual, you never get upset about things. You never raise your voice. Uh, you never get confrontational. If you're really close to God, well, then, you know, you, it's always okay. Maybe you pray about things, but you never confront anything. And that, folks, is a false view of what it is to walk with God. It's a false view of piety, and it's a damaging one, highly damaging. There's a lady I knew several years ago who, a uh, precious lady, who uh, got married to this guy, very much in love, and for the first year or so, the marriage was great. And then the guy started drinking. Uh, and he never came up for air after that. I mean, he just was pounding it down. Seven years later, I get to know this lady a little bit, and she shares this with me. And what was happening is this guy was almost perpetually drunk, going through a number of jobs because he couldn't hold a job because he was always drunk. Uh, really neglecting the kids, was hardly there for the kids. And when he was there for the kids, he's setting a terrible example because he's almost always drunk. Was a totally negligent husband. Uh, stayed out sometimes uh, several nights a week uh, till the wee hours of the morning, which is partly why he would lose these jobs. She had very good evidence that he was sometimes cheating on her, but she never confronted it. She prayed. Her idea of what it was to be a good Jesus-loving wife was to just sort of pray to be the intercessor for her wayward husband and to put up with all this. And so she would pray. Maybe once in a while say something like, honey, do you have to drink so much? Uh, but, but never got confrontational. And when I heard that, I just, my heart broke and I just said, what, what, what? Look, at, you ought to be enraged by this. This is not Okay. And I'm glad that you pray, wonderful, pray, but Jesus didn't, didn't just pray for the temple. Sometimes God will answer the prayer, and he'll answer the prayer by telling you to go and confront uh, what needs to be confronted. I said, there's a time to crack a whip and to turn over some tables. Because, see, you are precious. You, are, you have unsurpassable worth, but he's devaluing you by treating you like you were just some sort of maid in the house or something, and there's no respect that a husband should have for a wife, and there's no honor here. He's devaluing you, and that ought to make you mad. And your kids have got unsurpassable worth, and, and he's got a responsibility from God to care for these kids, but he's devaluing these kids. Uh, he's destroying his relationship with these kids, and that ought to make you mad. There's a time where you crack a whip and you turn over some tables. And, and your marriage is so precious to God, and yet he's, he's, he's drinking this marriage into the ground, and that ought to make you mad. Something that is very valuable is being devalued. That ought to make you enraged. That ought to make you want to turn over some tables and to crack a whip. And your husband has, is a man for whom Jesus died and has unsurpassable worth. But he's killing himself with all this drunkenness, and he's devaluing himself. And so for his sake, that ought to make you mad. It ought to make you want to crack a whip and turn over some tables. And her response was, well, what do I do? I, I, I pray, but I don't know what else to do. And my first word is to say, well, first of all, get mad. In Jesus' name, get mad. And see, the truth is she was already mad. How could you not be mad? 
She was already mad, but she would go to bed every night with her anger. She was not listening to uh, Ephesians 4.25. She was sleeping on that day after day after day. And so she ends up paying for the, the price for all the damage in the marriage. She's internalizing all this anger. It's coming out as depression. It comes out as anxiety. It comes out as an ulcer. It always comes out, but it never comes out in the right way because she's not dealing with it. So first of all, get in touch with that inner anger. You're sinning and giving the devil a foothold by not dealing with this. Now, once you get in touch with that and you ask God for wisdom and you talk to some friends about wisdom on how to do this, then it's time to start cleansing the temple. And it's time to start turning over some tables and cracking a whip. So you get in his face. You get in his face and show him a side of you that he's never maybe seen before. You get in there, you say, you know what? I love you and I love our marriage and I love our kids. And for that very reason, I'm not putting up with this crap anymore. This is not acceptable. You're devaluing very, very infinitely precious stuff here. And, and this is not acceptable. And if he won't listen to you, well then, write out, get a piece of paper and write down all the people that he has any respect for whatsoever or who at all care about him. And you do an intervention. You get in there, you come around this guy and you say, you know, we love you, we care about you, we care about your wife, we care about your kids, we care about your marriage, and for that reason, we are all telling you to get help and to, and to desist from this destructive behavior and, and to get this thing taken care of. Get big, crack a whip, turn over some tables, cleanse the temple. And if he still won't listen to you, if he just kind of blows everyone away, then you got to ask the question, what do you have to leverage? And seeking God's wisdom and seeking the wisdom of others, because there's not one, one size fits all kind of a thing here. But it may be the case that the only thing you have to leverage is the relationship itself. Does he have any concern, any care, any love for you and the kids? And that may be the only thing you've got. And so you say, you know what? I love you and I want to honor our marriage vows, but I will not live in this situation. I'm enabling you to go on destroying yourself, destroying our marriage, destroying our kids. I'm not going to live like this. And you're not saying you're going to divorce him, but you kick him out. Sometimes love, sometimes love gets really messy. Sometimes love has to get really tough. Sometimes love turns over tables. Sometimes love uh, cracks a whip and it doesn't look pretty, but it's a whole lot more godly than dysfunctional niceties. Well, you pretend like everything's well when in fact it's not. Sometimes you've got to get in people's face. It is not, not godly or Christ-like or loving to sit there and watch somebody destroy themselves. It's not godly or Christ-like or loving to let someone walk all over you and devalue you. It's not Christ-like or loving to let someone devalue your kids. It's not Christ-like to let someone destroy your marriage by drinking it in the ground. What is godly, what is Christ-like, even though it's tough, is to get in the face of somebody and turn over the table and crack the whip. And uh, if the person, if that doesn't work, if the person says, you know what, forget about it, if your spouse says that, well, now you know. That, that's important information. He doesn't care enough to modify his behavior to stay in the marriage. And at least now you know. There's something refreshing about honesty regardless of how terribly ugly it might be. Love sometimes has got to crack a whip and turn over some tables. Now this has... A kind of special application. It applies to all of our relationships, but it's got a particular application, I think, to small groups. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the temple was a building. And Jesus thought that building was worth fighting for and to keep it consecrated. In the New Testament, the building is the people of God. In the New Testament, it's understood that people are to be living in close-knit units. Uh, they, the, the churches in the early, early church met in each other's houses, so they couldn't have been more than 20 or 30 people. 
And in that context, that was called the temple of God. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? He uses the plural there. Now, there's a sense in which we all individually are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God, so you need to honor your body. But there's even, an even more profound sense, and this is how the New Testament usually speaks about it, where we together, our togetherness, our covenantal relationships are the, 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 the temple of God, where God dwells. The assumption of the New Testament, and we try to promote this as much as we can, is that we're all in missional communities where there's people who join us on a mission, and the mission is to grow in the kingdom of God and to advance the kingdom of God. And you have a covenant with one another that, that you're going to help one another do that. And you still have fun together and all sorts of stuff like that, but the, the group has a purpose. And that is the temple of God in the New Testament, not a building. You thought you came to church here this morning? Wrong all. This is a building where we have a seminar and we worship. But we are the church. The people are the church. And we manifest the church in the togetherness of our relationships. And in that context, Jesus thought the temple worth fighting for to keep it consecrated to God and not let it get reduced to becoming some kind of common you know, place of selling stuff. So also, there's a place in the New Testament temple where we're called on to crack a whip and turn over some tables and sometimes get in people's faces in order to keep that temple consecrated to God, to keep a mission to the group. A number of years ago, this is probably 13 or 14 years ago, I guess, uh, there was a group, uh, a group that was sort of related to Woodland Hills Church. Some of the people were from Woodland Hills, some were from a different church. And I heard about all this after the fact, but, but here's the thing. They had a group they had meeting for about six months, I guess, and the problem is that uh, one of the ladies in the group started having an affair with somebody, not someone in the group, but outside the group. Uh, and the husband found out about it. And it came up once in the small group uh, that this was happening and they didn't know how to handle it. The wife blamed the husband because he'd been a jerk of a husband. The husband blamed the wife, blah, blah, blah. The group didn't want to deal with that and just said, well, you guys you know, worked that out. Bad news is that the husband never came back to the group. Um, uh, the wife kept on coming back to the group, and that, that's good. But the bad news is that she didn't repent of this affair. She kept on having this affair, but no one talked about it. It got worse when she moved in with her boyfriend, and still no one talked about it. And it got worse when she brought the boyfriend to the small group, and still no one talked about it. What's wrong with this picture? Now, maybe this is just a profoundly shallow group where the deepest thing they talk about is the weather, but if the kingdom is, if this group has any kingdom stuff to it at all, this has got to be confronted. I mean, to be a kingdom group means that you're there for the kingdom and you can't be for the kingdom unless you're against some things that aren't kingdom. And so somebody should have been turning over some tables and somebody should have been cracking a whip uh, to get involved in this. And it's not a matter of finding out who's to blame. I don't doubt for a second that the, the affair was simply a symptom of a far deeper problem. But that's what the kingdom units are for, is to say, we want to get involved in this mess. Let's, let, let, let's see if we can't work through this. And maybe they get outside help or not, I don't know. But to simply, allow, to simply pretend like everything's okay, what happens is that that changes the nature of the group. Your mission was to live in the kingdom, but the minute you start saying this is just you know, okay, well, now you're a group that says this is okay, and that's not the kingdom. You were going to New York, if New York's the kingdom, and now you're going to Boston or, or, or California or someplace, but you're not going where you were initially going. In order to stay true to the mission, to stay consecrated to God, there's got, we've got to give each other the ability, the right, the responsibility of cracking a whip when we need someone to crack a whip. 
for us and turning over tables. We need people who are there in our life who care enough to confront when things need to be confronted. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18. And he says this, when, there's, when there is in the church, and whenever you hear the New Testament talk about church, don't think mega church or event. Think house church, 20 to 30 people or so, where they're living life together. They know one another, and there's the understanding, the covenantal understanding that they're for one another, to help one another live out the kingdom and advance the kingdom. And Jesus says in the church, that unit, if there's someone with this offense, some destructive behavior, ungodly behavior that they've fallen into, first, when you notice it, you go to them alone. You, keep, you contain it as private as possible. And out of love, always out of love, never out of judgment, never retaliation, out of love, you go to the person and you say, I'm concerned about this. You confront it. If they don't listen to you, Jesus says, well, then you go with two or three other people from the church. And you say, we're concerned about this. You're doing a little intervention. And this, how can we help you get free from this behavior or this attitude, whatever it is? And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, you bring it before the whole church. And you all confront this person. And if the person still will not repent, which simply means they change, if they won't do it, Jesus says, well, then you got to see them as a heathen or as a pagan. And it doesn't mean that you stop loving them, because we're called to love everybody. You still love them, but it means you're saying out loud what is true. What is true, actions always speak louder than words. And what is true is that they're no longer part of this missional community. The church has a mission to advance the kingdom of God, and part of that includes being held accountable to one another. This person clearly is not interested in being held accountable. So there's no judgment about this. It's just a way of saying, we're going to New York, and you're apparently going somewhere else. And we still love you, but we're going to go on New York, and if we just keep on pretending like you're going to New York when you're clearly not, well, that's going to sidetrack the whole thing. And so in love, there's a time where you set them out. We all need people in our life who, uh, who we trust enough to turn over a table and crack a whip when we need that. People who are close enough to us to notice when we're starting to go off track and, and have the wherewithal and the courage and the wisdom to confront it. In love, without judgment, to, but to confront it uh, and to uh, free us from whatever it is we're falling into. We, are, we so lack wisdom on this, partly because we live in a culture where no one's supposed to have the right to say anything to anybody. Our individualism, partly because we live in a culture here in Minnesota where it's considered rude to ever say anything confrontational to anybody. And partly because people, we, we don't tend to read, in, in, in the Western church, we don't tend to read the New Testament in the context of house churches. So you get a lot of people sometimes getting angry, but they get angry at the wrong people for the wrong reasons. It's important we get God's wisdom on when we confront, who we confront, and how we confront. When it comes to family, and it comes to close friends, and when it comes to our kids and our marriages and our kingdom communities, there is a place for turning over tables and cracking a whip and confronting aggressively things that need to be confronted. Outside of that context, it very, very rarely is the case that we're in a position where we should confront something. I say that because there are some Christians who don't seem to be content with cleaning their temples. Rather, they want to clean everybody else. They want to clean the country and take it back for God. They want to be the moral police of everybody, so they go on whip-cracking campaigns for the society at large. And it seems like everybody but themselves can notice that they themselves have pretty messy temples, but instead of looking at their own mess, they like to deal with other people's messes. And these are the folks that 
several weeks ago, try to disrupt a, a, a gay pride parade and to make a statement there. And, and they're the ones who send out the nasty emails calling you to uh, support this campaign or vote for this candidate or, or, or whatever. And so instead of cleaning up the temple, they're cleaning up the country and they want to fix the world. And that usually does no good whatsoever to the kingdom of God. Look at it. Ask yourself this question. Why did Jesus go to the Jewish temple to clean it up, but he didn't go to any pagan temples? He didn't go to the temple of Dionysius or Apollo or any of the, the Oracle of Delphi. Or There's a lot of pagan places he could have gone that were a whole lot worse than the temple, but he went to the, the Jewish temple and didn't say a word about those. And why did he go to the outer courts of the temple, the Jewish temple, but he didn't raise a ruckus in Pilate's court or Herod's court or, or, or Caesar's court? And the answer is because Jesus is operating with a covenantal understanding, God's covenant with the nation of Israel. It was still operative at this time. And the understanding involves, among other things, uh, the, the awareness that the role of a prophet, let alone the Messiah, is to confront Jewish leaders when Jewish leaders are going astray. And so it, it makes sense. There's a covenantal background and basis for him to confront the, uh, the, the corruption in the Jewish temple. But he doesn't have any kind of covenantal understanding with the pagans, let alone with the, the Roman state. And so he focuses on cleansing the temple of God and he's not trying to crack a whip or turn over tables uh, for the pagans. By the same means, our responsibility is to cleanse the temple. The temple is the us. But outside of that jurisdiction, there's simply no covenantal basis to hold other people accountable. You can't hold people accountable to things that they haven't agreed to be held accountable to. It'd be like, I sometimes say to Christians who struggle with this, this, this point, how would you feel if you're eating in a restaurant, you're eating some pork, and, and a Muslim comes up to you and says, how dare you eat pork? The Quran forbids it. Well, you might be inclined to say, so? I don't, I don't believe in the Quran, so that's not really my problem. <laughs> you see, when you try to hold someone accountable to a, on the basis of something they haven't agreed to, you just come across as sort of intolerant, judgmental, Maybe a religious jerk. Uh, look at, here, here's how Paul de deals with it. Uh, at Corinth, he's talking to this uh, particular church at Corinth, house church. And in this particular group, 20, 30 people, however big it was, they were allowing a guy in that congregation to go on as though everything was okay when he was having sex with his mother-in-law. And not only were they condoning it, but apparently they were actually kind of flaunting it, like, we're so into grace, we, this, even, even this doesn't bother us. Now, Paul is the leader of this, these congregations at Corinth. He's got responsibility for him. They've submitted to his authority by virtue of, 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 of seeing him as the apostle. And so he's, he's in a position where he has to speak into this, just like a pastor has to speak into those who have given him authority by being under uh, uh, part of his flock, or however you want to phrase it. And so Paul is livid. He's confronting this and he's saying, you have got to turn over some tables and crack a whip and call this guy to repent. And if he doesn't repent, you have to expel him. Now, in the course of doing that, he says this. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? <clears throat> it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no business. Lock it in. You've got no business judging those outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside, those in your covenantal community who have agreed to carry out this mission of building the kingdom? 
that's where you are to have discernment and turn over tables and confront. But outside of that very specific context, you're not to judge those outside the church. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. What Paul's doing here is this. He's saying clean up the temple. Keep the temple consecrated. If, if you are a group that now is okay with one of your members uh, having sex with your mother-in-law, now you've become to that degree a group that's not a kingdom group. To stand for the kingdom means you stand against things that are obviously, we're not talking about some kind of ambiguity here, but are obviously anti-kingdom. And if you don't stand for that, well, now you become a group that's just heading in a different direction altogether. So for the sake of the temple, you've got to confront this man and do Matthew 18, and if he doesn't repent, you've got to turn him out. Now, you do that in love, if you read 1 Corinthians 5, uh, it's very clear that they're doing it in love with the hope that this person gets redeemed, but you also have to keep the temple consecrated. Having said that, Paul says, you leave all outsiders to God. It's not the business of Christians to be judging those outside the church. You can't hold accountable people who haven't agreed to be held accountable. You leave all that to God. So if there's someone in your, your covenantal group that is having sex with their mother-in-law, start turning over tables and crack a whip. But if your neighbor is having sex with his mother-in-law, that's none of your business. You maybe don't like it. Maybe it grosses you out, but you leave that to God. Your only job for people outside of, of the church, your only job is to be Christ to them, to love like Christ loved you, to give your life for them, to sacrifice for them. That's all. Your only job is to agree with God that this person was worth dying for. And what they're doing with their life, well, you, you leave that to God. Now, it may happen. That in time, they invite you in on their life and you form a covenantal community with them. Well, then out of love, you know, you start helping one another grow in the kingdom and they help you. But without that, there's just no place to hold people accountable. The right attitude to have towards non-believers is also illustrated by Paul. The best example of this is in Acts 17, where um, Paul was preaching in, in Athens and... Um, uh, some intellectuals heard him and they wanted to find out more about his gospel. So they invited him to kind of come to their little club and, uh, and, and, and talk to them. Now, Paul had been noticing all these idols around Athens. Uh, and and they, they, they covered all their bases by having an idol to every possible god. And so Paul, uh, he goes to uh, this council and it says this. He says, Paul stood up in front of the city council and said, I see that in every way you Athenians are very religious. Now, Paul, as a monotheistic Jew in the first century, would have been grieved to the core by all this idolatry. First century Jews hated idols. And so Paul would be like, Ugh, this is gross. But he doesn't crack a whip and start turning over tables and smashing idols and driving out the idolaters. No, there's no covenantal basis for that. Instead, Paul compliments them. He finds something positive to say. Man, you guys are really religious. You got everything covered. Now, maybe there's a little sarcasm in Paul's mind, but it, it's coming out as a sincere compliment. You guys are really religious. For as I walked through the, your city and looked at the places where you worshiped, I found an altar on which it is written to an unknown God. Well, that which you worship, then, even though you do not know it, that's what I now proclaim to you. Paul doesn't go after the stuff he doesn't agree with because he doesn't have the covenantal basis to do that. They haven't invited that from him. So he, he, he looks past all the idols and instead he looks for an opening, uh, a, a, a place where they can have some commonality where he can build a bridge to sharing the gospel. When we confront people on issues they haven't asked us to confront, 
you come across as an intolerant, judgmental, religious jerk. If Paul had done that, all opportunities to evangelize would have ended that moment. When you insult somebody, they're not going to listen to what you have to say now. So instead, Paul affirms them, looks past all the things he doesn't agree with, finds one thing he does agree with. Okay, you do agree that there is an unknown God out there, right? Good. Let me talk to you about him. That's how we're to evangelize. Share the gospel. Now, there's a, there's a, a form of evangelism out there that's pretty widespread that says the opposite of that. We're supposed to be confronting people and holding them accountable to our beliefs. Uh, I, I want to encourage you not to do that. Uh, follow Paul's example. Outside the church, there's no realm for judgment. There's just realm for sharing the gospel in wise ways as we look for opportunities, not insulting, but rather affirming people and sacrificing of our life on their behalf. In the church, there's a room in covenantal communities for cracking a whip and turning over tables. So I want to end with these two questions. In fact, I, as I ask them, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us get honest with one another. Two questions here. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Give awareness to what we need awareness about here. First, is there something in your life, someone in your life, some issue in your life that you need to confront and you haven't been doing it? Have you been committing the sin of passivity? Pretending like you're not angry when you really are. When something of value, and maybe it's been you, something of value is not being valued. But you go to bed every night with that anger. And maybe you're even aware of how you're paying the price for that because it's eating you alive, it's poisoning you, it's cancer. Maybe it gets manifested as depression or anxiety or whatever. In the light of this message, will you, if God brings that to your awareness, and be honest with yourself, covenant with him that you will turn from the sin of passivity, and passive, pa passive aggressiveness, and confront what needs to be confronted. You do it in love and you pray, God, give me love instead of judgment or retaliation. But you do confront. And ask God for the courage to do this. Ask God perhaps to be free from whatever it is that's causing you to be afraid of this. Maybe you're afraid of it looking as ugly as it actually is. Ask God to free you from that and get all your life from him so you're not needing to get it from what a person, whether they like you or not. And then start turning over tables and confront. Ask God to give you wisdom about that and invite others in on your life to talk about wisdom because God uses others in our life to, to lead us and guide us. Holy Spirit, lock in whatever you're communicating to your people right now. Secondly, are there those here listening, whether you're in the auditorium or listening through some other means, where your issue has been that uh, you tend to judge those outside the church? You tend to want to tear down the idols of other people even when your own temple is pr pretty messy. Will you hear, if this is landing on you, surrender all that judgment over to God? Maybe there's a lot of anger. Will you surrender that to God? A lot of things you think are wrong. Will you surrender that to God? And accept the fact that you are called to simply be a Jesus follower who loves people the way Jesus loves you. And your only job for those outside the church, outside of your covenantal community, your only job is to replicate Calvary to them and bleed for them. Father, will you hear, seal on our hearts whatever message needs to be sealed. Whether it's receiving loving boldness to confront or whether it's letting go of judgment towards others. Free us to be your people, to love outrageously, to confront wisely, and to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... 
Amen. Amen. The altar's open if you want to come forward for prayer. I encourage you to come down and, and receive that from our prayer teams. Otherwise, God bless you. Go out with wisdom, strength, and power. Amen. Thanks for tuning into this message from Woodland Hills. We hope you enjoyed it. You can download more sermon resources, including study guides and our entire sermon archive, on our website at whchurch.org. You can also discuss the sermons and connect with other members of the Woodland Hills body on the bridge at bridge.whchurch.org.